Hello, and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between, from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Banton, along with me on this journey revisiting 80s movies is my co-host, Jason Masek. Hello, Jason. Hey, Jason, you know we go back a long way, and I'm not going to piss that away because you're higher than a kite. Wrong. A long time ago, we knew each other for a short period of time. You don't know anything about me. It was easy back then. No one had a cushier birth than we did. It's not surprising our friendship could survive that. It's only out there in the real world that it gets tough. That's right, listeners. We are discussing, with spoilers aplenty, the 1983 drama, The Big Chill, from Carson Productions. Distributed by Columbia Pictures, it stars Kevin Klein, Joe Beth Williams, Tom Berringer, William Hurt, Mary Kay Place, Jeff Goldblum, and Meg Tilly. Written and directed by Lawrence Kasdan, this movie is rated R with a running time of 1 hour and 45 minutes. It was nominated for three Oscars, Best Writing, Screenplay Written Directly for the Screen, Glenn Close for Best Actress in a Supporting Role, and Best Picture. So, what is this movie about? What's on the box? If you grew up in the 1980s and went to your local video store to rent this movie, you would find this description on the back of the VHS box. It is What's on the Box. Take it away, Jason. This compassionate comedy of values probes the growing pains of seven college housemates from the 1960s who have drifted apart and then reunite at the funeral of a friend. Having entered adulthood as nonconformists, most now belong to the establishment. Harold, Kevin Klein, has grown up to be a running shoe magnet. Michael, Jeff Goldblum, a gossip magazine journalist, Sam, Tom Berenger, TV's hottest private eye, and Nick, William Hurt, a drug dealer. Among the women, Sarah, Glenn Close, is a doctor, Meg, Mary Kay Place, a lawyer, and Karen, Joe Beth Williams, a wife and mother in the suburbs. Stunned by the death of their peer, sensing their own mortality and the loss of their innocence, each takes the opportunity to reevaluate his or her life and reestablish their bond. The Big Chill. The Big Chill. So that was what's on the box. Jason, how are we doing? Feeling good, Bill Bant. Feeling really good, man. It was really nice to revisit this film. I hadn't watched it in some time, and uh, I was looking forward to it. So I'm ready to go. How are you doing, man? I am doing well and looking forward to discussing this also. So let's move on to earliest memories. What are our earliest memories of The Big Chill? Jason, start us off. Yes, indeed. The Big Chill from way back when in 1983. Well, my first earliest memory was just knowing that this film was written and directed by the one and only Lawrence Kasdan. I was a fan, of course, because he had written my favorite film of all time. Yeah, that's right. The Empire Strikes Back from 1980. So you have that just to start with. And then, of course, the incredible cast. I mean, we have... Eight, count them, eight protagonists in this film. And I'm not going to go over all of their names right now, but it is an incredible cast. Uh, those of you familiar with the film will be familiar with the cast. And, I, you know, one of the one of this, the memories, I'll, just the fact that Kevin Costner was supposed to be in this movie and technically is in this movie. You just never see his face. You only see a few of his body parts, <laughs> I guess you could say. And that's just a well-known trivia fact at this point. But back when we were in film school, it was one of those little tidbits that we had heard about. And it was like, oh, you're in the know if you know that Kevin Costner was actually in this movie. 
So that was one thing you would brag about if you were kind of a, a film nerd back then. And uh, moving on, yeah, I just remember, yeah, of course, the soundtrack. The soundtrack's iconic. It's huge. It's a big part of this movie. And I know it may sound cliche, but it's definitely a character in the film. It really, really supports and carries the film and puts you into a certain mood and it carries a certain tone. I mean, before watching this, now I did not watch this until college. So that would be somewhere in between 91 and 95 for me. And I definitely heard about it. It was definitely a film school movie because of the writing and because of the performances. So I had to watch it in college and I did, and I adored it. It's a different kind of movie where it's, again, simply because of the writing and the performances, it flows in a certain way. It feels like a play. It's very theatrical and it's not as if there's a lot of action. There's not a great deal of things that happen in this film. It's just a slice of life. And I appreciated that. And I was just, again, engrossed in what these people's lives were like. And they're coming together as friends at this point in their lives. So I enjoyed it for the simple nature of it. It's not necessarily simple. There's there's some complicated issues that they're dealing with. And obviously they're you know dealing with the suicide of one of their best friends from college in this film. And it's uh, now 15 years later that they're getting together. So, I mean, those, that's really it for me. I just, I've always had a special place in my heart for this film because of the writing. So that's really it for me. What about you, Bill Band? What are your earliest memories of this film? Yeah. For the big chill, the first thing I remember about this movie is the poster. I was leaving the movie theater and I don't even know what movie it was that I saw, but it was certainly that came out during the summer of 83. And here was this poster in the theater when I was leaving. Now, the poster itself was nothing special. It was a group of people all bunched together and none that I remember recognizing. And when you look at the poster now, it is a terrible cut and paste job. Mm-hmm. But what stood out was the title, The Big Chill. What does that mean? I will explain that later in the pod. So the title stuck with me. So anytime I heard that title mentioned, my ears would kind of perk up and I needed to watch that movie someday. And years later, I finally would see it. And at that point, I knew a lot of the cast that was in that movie from other movies that I saw. And like you were mentioning, the Kenton Costner, the first time I did hear about that was during film class. It was my freshman year. And that was because of his scenes being cut. We also learned that that was the reason he was cast in Silverado. That was Lawrence Kasdan's makeup for, hey, sorry, your scenes got cut. When I do another film, I'll make sure I put you in it. That movie happened to be Silverado. As for the movie itself, I remember a lot of jogging. (laughs) The music, as you mentioned, uh, a lot of scenes in the kitchen. Jeff Goldblum being really funny. And almost everyone at the end of the movie ends up having sex together. Not all together. Not like an orgy. It's not Caligula. No. They pair off at the end. Yeah, that is my earliest memories of The Big Chill. Yeah, that's great stuff, Bill Ban. And I'm glad you brought up the soundtrack again, too, because uh, just to be clear for our audience that may not be familiar with this film, it's mainly 60s classics. And that's because our protagonist has have gone to school or went to school at the University of Michigan in the 60s. And uh, of course, uh, then they reunite 15 years later for this uh, sad occasion. But the music is meant to 
be nostalgic. And I, I find that especially appropriate since we're doing a bit of a nostalgia podcast. So just want to clarify, yeah, that the bulk of the soundtrack is it's all 60s classics, just great tunes. I'm going to go over some of the track listing, but you brought up Jeff Goldblum too, and I'd be remiss if I didn't say my earliest memories, really. I mean, of course, so many great cast members, but definitely when I think of this movie, I do think of a tall, lanky Jeff Goldblum being very funny and the very attractive and very young Meg Tilly. I had a thing for her. I don't know if it was because Jeff Goldblum had a thing for her in the film, but I I definitely thought she was very, very cute. And that is a significant early memory for me. So, uh, yeah, that's it, Bill Bant. Uh, I'm ready to move on if you are. Yeah, go for it. Let's uh, hear some initial thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. So I always like to start with our director, some of the behind the scenes folks. And yeah, I had mentioned Lawrence Kasdan already. So he is the director and I should say co-writer of this movie. He wrote this alongside Barbara Benedek. But uh, Lawrence Kasdan, let's put it plainly, he's the man. I've always been a fan. He's got a way with words and conversational dialogue. So in case you didn't already know, in the 80s, he directed Body Heat, The Big Chill, Silverado, and The Accidental Tourist. He would also go on to direct other notable films such as Grand Canyon in 91 and then Wyatt Earp in 94. But he probably is primarily known as a writer, and he wrote my favorite movie of all time, as I mentioned, The Empire Strikes Back, and then a a little movie called Raiders of the Lost Ark in 1981. And then he wrote Continental Divide, and he worked on the screenplay for Return of the Jedi with George Lucas. But besides directing, uh, you know, he these movies like Body Heat, The Big Chill, Silverado, and The Accidental Tourist, he wrote those too. And he also wrote, in more recent times, another little movie called Star Wars The Force Awakens, that was in 2015, and Solo, A Star Wars Story, in 2018. So I do love me a writer-director, and uh, man, obviously his contributions to some of the greatest movies ever made. Yeah, gotta talk about the music in this movie for a sec. Not all the tracks are on the actual soundtracks that were released. Definitely one of the major things this film is known for. Here's a taste of some of the tracks from the film. You have, you can't always get what you want from the Rolling Stones. I'm putting in my DJ voice now. And maybe next up, we've got Bad Mood Rising from CCR. That's Green's Clearwater Revival. There's also When a Man Loves a Woman. I heard it through the grapevine. My Girl. Oh, gosh, the tracks of my tears. I'm going to skip over some of these. That They're all bangers here. Uh, it's the same old song, Dancing in the Street. What's going on? Too Many Fish in the Sea. I mean, it's loaded. You can look it up. It's a wonderful soundtrack. So here's an initial thought, Bill Bant. The movie begins, and I'm already like, this is tailor-made for a prestige limited series, like a six-episode streaming show on Netflix. But the truth is, funny enough, I mean, this could easily be a play. I mean, the movie almost entirely takes place at one location. It's dialogue-heavy. And it's 30-somethings talking about their lives in the wake of a friend's passing. And that's it. Not a whole lot else happens. And it still moves. And it still makes me look inward at my own path that I set on way back when in college and where it led to today. I'm going to go with this initial thought, Bill Bant, and I'm just calling it the first 20 minutes. I often like to mention the setup of a movie if I adore it. And I do adore the setup of this movie. Uh, for my initial thoughts segment, because it's kind of a way in or it like I 
want like to say here, initiates the audience into the world of the movie we're talking about. There's just very few lines spoken in the first 20 minutes. And how much do we learn about our protagonists just from the opening montage all the way into the very beginning of the memorial service? I mean, it's a really, really solid setup. We immediately see Harold and Sarah. Uh, Harold is giving a bath to his young son. Harold and Sarah being a married couple, that's Kevin Klein and Glenn Close. And Glenn Close receives a phone call and we can just see from her face, it's been, it's terrible news. A tear is running down her face as she's staring at Kevin Klein. She, he stares back at her and then it cuts to another protagonist. And I'm just going to kind of skip over a few characters, but we see Michael played by uh, Jeff Goldblum and he's dealing with some the news in his own way. He's very frustrated. You can see he's at a typewriter and he's throwing pages around. He's throwing things around on his desk. He's obviously frustrated. That's how he's dealing with his grief. We have Sam Weber on the airplane. That's Sam uh, played by Tom Berenger. And immediately, you know, he's got four empty little mini bottles of vodka in front of him. A flight attendant comes up to him and asks him for his autograph because he's on the cover of a recent magazine. And we're like, oh, okay, he's an actor. He's a TV star. Got it. And he's dealing with grief in his own way. He's getting drunk on a plane. And then we see Nick driving his Porsche, and that's played by William Hurt. And he's going through his glove compartment where there are prescription drugs. We're like, okay, get an idea who this guy is and maybe an obstacle he might be dealing with. So he's dealing with his grief in that way. And in between the establishment of these characters in the very opening montage, we get shots of what I call the body. That's Kevin Costner, but we don't see his face. But it's the deceased being prepped for uh, the funeral service, the memorial service, and his presentation of the body in the casket. So we see this suit being put on the body. And the final shot of the montage is the sleeve being pulled over the wrist of the body. We see the stitched scars on his wrist. And so it's like, oh, that's all we need to see. It's like, okay, this poor bastard, he committed suicide. Okay. And then they all arrive at the church and his quick character traits and even relationship development, which is mostly unspoken. And it's great. Michael is flirtatious, almost aggressively with Chloe, this young girl who played by Meg Tilly, who is the was the young girlfriend of Alex. And Alex is the person who passed. And she seems particularly unaffected in this memorial service scene. And then we see Sam come in, who's the actor, the famous actor, and he makes eye contact with Karen, played by Joe Beth Williams, and they exchange a look, and she establishes, she leans back and establishes the fact that she's married now, so we know there was something between Sam and Karen. It's just that kind of stuff. I'm not going to go too deep into it, but, I mean, basically, that's my first favorite scene, if you will, so I'm just covering two birds with one stone here. So that's an initial thought. The first 20 minutes, that's how you establish characters and how you get the story started, you know, establishing relationships as well. I simply love Bill Bant, the connection you sense from all of these characters, the the connection between all of them. They really do establish a great chemistry. These friends share a great deal of honesty with one another. Everyone seems to know everything about one another. They don't hide it from one another, whether it's Nick's impotency or his obvious drug use, or the fact that Sarah Glenn Close has had an, had an affair with the deceased, had an affair with Alex five years previous, or whether it's somebody that has affections for, for someone else in this group, they just don't hide it and they don't judge each other for the most part. 
I mean, gosh, even when they're looking at Michael flirting with Chloe, I mean, they say it isn't right and they know, but they just know who he is. They accept each other for who they are. So that's an initial thought. I just appreciated the chemistry between the actors, the characters, etc. Watching this movie, it just made me think of just what happens to our friends and our dreams after we leave college. And I'm going to get a little into that a little bit more here in just a moment, but I, I'm just going to backtrack to, to William Hurt here. William Hurt, for me, for the longest time, was an acquired taste. I mean, it took me a while to warm up to the... I was not a big fan of his as an actor. And just as I've gotten older, I appreciate him more and more. And upon revisiting this film, I love the guy. He's the standout performance for me in this particular film. So that's an initial thought. Here's another one. I love the device of the video camera in this film as it serves as kind of a a device for a a confessional uh, throughout the film. We get all of our protagonists kind of appearing on this video camera at different points in the film, revealing things about themselves. It's pretty funny. So again, back to what this movie is for me today. It just, first of all, it makes me want to have a college reunion right now, uh, like a retreat of some sort, like a big house like that. That would be awesome, like a huge Airbnb. But uh, it makes me think of the midlife crisis, the processing of loss, the processing of death, being with people that remind you of your younger self, of a time of when you may have been your better self, uh, those better times and how it makes you feel about yourself today. It makes me think of, College as this kind of coming of age transformative period and the people you go on that journey with are bonded to you in a certain way. Uh, The movie to me today, watching it today, is about great friends facing their past and present together. They have this brief window, a few days, a weekend that they're going to spend together to look back fondly, to remember their friend. But it's definitely an exploration of looking for answers, searching for an explanation, creating excuses for dying, for living finding ways to escape through drugs and drinking and sex and finding connection through drugs and drinking and sex. But ultimately, to me, it's about how these 30-somethings are going to face themselves now and accept life on life's terms. Sure, they have this weekend together, and it's this opportunity to take stock in what they have in themselves and each, in each other. But at the end, you know, they got to face the present life that they have and take ownership as this culmination of choices that they've made over the years. And now, They can make the right choices going forward if they're brave enough and if they're honest and if they remember that nothing else matters but the connection they have and their love for one another. Yeah, I I enjoyed this rewatch. It made me think about my own life and my own friends a great deal. So what what are your initial thoughts? Yeah, for me, when it comes to The Big Chill, this is a movie I revisit just about every decade. And what a cast. And sorry, Jason, I'm going to go through them. Do it. Uh, Glenn Close. Fatal Attraction, Tom Berenger, Platoon, Joe Beth Williams, Poltergeist, Jeff Goldblum, The Fly, Kevin Klein, A Fish Called Wanda, William Hurt, Body Heat, Meg Tilly, Psycho 2, and Mary Kay Place. I'm not going to lie. If you asked me to name another movie Mary Kay Place was in, I'd draw a blank. But she was in Private Benjamin and Modern Problems, both movies that I had seen a couple of times. That is the lineup right there with Oscar winners and nominees. The music is great, and Harold, like me, is stuck in the music he grew up with. But I will listen to today's music on occasion, but if I need to go to, I've got my 80s on. Maybe now a little bit more first wave than top 40, but yeah, usually something that covers the decade. So I knew where he was coming from. This is a movie about friendship and change. And Jason and I have talked about this many times before. The people we were 
earlier in life, and in this instance, it was college, are not the same as who we are now. We are thrown into the real world and our experiences change, the people we interact with change, and with it, we view things differently. Unfortunately, we get a little jaded. I mean, how many times do you tell yourself now, what is wrong with people? Was that something you said growing up? Probably not. And so these bonds you made in college, even though they will not be broken and we focus on the good times, that person or people that you knew are different. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. We should always be growing and evolving, hoping for the better. In this movie, you get the sense that these characters were all gung-ho about changing the world and righting wrongs. But then reality sets in. None of them achieved that goal. Some of them came really close to achieving, but didn't like it or want it. And some realized that really wasn't the goal they wanted all along and became lost on what that new goal should be. Most of the characters in this movie are dealing well, but we see that person they were in college is in the past and the characters recognize there's a special place inside of them for that time and they cherish it but that's not who they are now. However, their friendship does stay strong at the end, and they have accepted who they all have become, and even for some, grown a little more. This movie certainly makes me miss college and all the friendships we had. It sucks that most of the friends of mine from college are scattered throughout the U.S., and most of them I haven't seen since my wedding, and the thought that the next time I might see some of them is at a funeral kind of sucks. We are getting at that age, and unfortunately, that's just the way life works. Yeah, that's my initial thoughts of this movie. Yeah, if it has a little bit of a somber tone, it's understandable. This film forced me to be introspective and nostalgic and appreciative and grateful for the life that I have and the friends that I have and how my college experience shaped me. And like you said, I am different now, but the, my college experience and the, and the people that I met during that time did put me on a certain path. And I, I'd like to think that I'm actually still on that path. And I'm, I'm lucky to still be in the same field that I wanted to be when you know, I was just 19, 20, 21 years old. But it's just dealing with age. It's facing reality. It's facing the reality today that I'm 49 years old and I'm different. I have a different perspective on life and my wants and needs. And again, like you said, we've talked about this before. When the other things that come with age that are out of our control, such as uh, loss of a loved one, that is something that now is it's inevitable and something that has to be processed and faced and accepted. And uh, that brings up a lot of different uh, of emotions. You learn as you go, no matter how much, how many times you watch the big chill or you listen to your parents or other people's experiences in dealing with these sorts of things. uh, You don't know until you go through it. And now we're going through it. So it's kind of a unique and kind of cool thing to watch this movie today at 49 years old and, and think of it much differently than I did in film school. That's for sure. I'm not just appreciating it for the quality of the writing and, uh, and direction. For that's for sure. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when we first saw this, I mean, I saw it right before college. 
So you have that perspective of, hey, these four years are great and you make these bonds that are going to last forever. And then watching it when I'm the age of the characters in this movie and seeing how things have changed from what I thought was going to happen leaving college. And now I'm another decade beyond that and looking back and looking at both perspectives of what was then and how it progressed to what it is now. It's very interesting. I think that's why I like revisiting this movie every once in a while and just how I feel about the movies change. Like when, the first mm-hmm. time I saw it, the, the standout character to me was Jeff Goldblum just because he was funny. And because I was younger, I, I appreciated the, the comedy and like you, and you mentioned too, the character that now st- stands out is William Hurt. Cause he essentially has the biggest arc mm-hmm. Correct. in this story, which only takes place over three days right? where he grows because it's almost set up that he's almost going to be the next Alex. And over the course of these two days, he kind of sees this. Great point. And he almost steps in for Alex to finish the project that Alex was originally doing, which was working on um, Sarah and Harold's home on this land. And now that's how it ends. Like, yeah, I'm going to stick around. I'm actually going to finish Alex's project. It's kind of cool how your perspective changes watching this each time I've seen it. And what I liked back then is not even the same that I like now about the film. This film is a little unique in the way that it really is a slice of life. It is just watching these characters over three days, have these conversations of what their lives are like and what their relationships were like, what they are now, et cetera, and how they're processing their friends passing. So we understand that you're a fly on the wall. Sure. It's a mixture of naturalism, uh, realism and fictionalization as well, because obviously some of the the language or the, the writing is flowery. I mean, Lawrence Kasdan's a great writer and this is a movie, but you do feel like a fly on the wall when you're watching some of these conversations, especially these dinner scenes or conversations after dinner. And uh, there are three big ones in particular. You've got friends lying on the floor, lying on the couch, putting their feet up on each other's laps and they're smoking pot and doing the thing just like friends do. And you're like, oh, wow, I'm really being let in on this real conversation. And you become engrossed in it because you're like, oh, these people are living, living, being fleshed out characters uh, just existing in real time. And it's that's how this movie works. And it's fun to watch. All right, so let's move into our favorite scenes or moments. What are some of our favorite scenes and moments from The Big Chill? Yeah, absolutely. Let's get into it. I had mentioned my first favorite scene already, which was the setup. I didn't do a great job, but the opening montage just establishes our protagonists getting the news or having just gotten the news that Alex, their old-time University of Michigan friend, best friend, had committed suicide. And now they are all going to come together for the memorial slash funeral, I believe, South Carolina. Is it Beaufort? Beaufort. Oh, yeah. I can't remember the actual city. So that has occurred. They've all come to the service, and now they're going to all spend the weekend. That's the seven best friends are going to spend the weekend at Harold and Sarah's home in South Carolina. It's like a big plantation house. It's a beautiful home. And the eighth protagonist is Chloe, played by Meg Tilly. Chloe is, like I mentioned, was the young girlfriend of Alex. So she also is still there. She actually lives downstairs where she was living with Alex before he had uh, committed suicide. And so she is going to remain there for the time being. And so she's 
like the eighth wheel, I guess you could say, of this group of people that are going to be together for the next few days just to be together after this memorial service and funeral. And and at this point, I believe it's been the first night that they've spent together and it's the following day and they each have found their own rooms and beds and we've seen some different interactions, some interesting interactions, but they're becoming comfortable within the house and walking around. And this comes to my uh, next favorite scene, which is what I call Nick puts himself on camera. Nick has found the video camera in the living room. I love this because uh, let me talk about Nick just for a real quick before I get into this video camera, which is great. What we know about Nick, played by William Hurt uh, at this point, we know that he likes prescription drugs and he likes cocaine. He had a little stash of cocaine, actually, attached to the bottom of his Porsche, which is amazing. That's how he like smuggled it Excuse me, to South Carolina. So at this point, we know he's got a little bit of a drug issue and everybody else seems to be aware of it. And he's gotten a little nudging from Harold in particular that uh, he might want to find a new line of work. He's walking around the living room, finds this great old school video recorder. And if you are from the 80s, like we are, we remember those big bulky video recorders you'd put on your shoulder or you'd put them on a tripod and that's how you took video. So he decides to record his own sort of confessional, but... I like to call it like a one-man talk show. Uh, it's kind of about his life story since college. So he sets up the camera, sits on a couch, and he videotapes himself talking to himself as if he's interviewing himself on a TV show. And he dives right in, saying that after college, he had gone to Vietnam and returned a changed man. And then it's like he switches from interviewer to interviewee and goes, oh, well, why don't you just tell everybody? Now, he's commenting on the fact that he is a Vietnam vet, and as a result, he is impotent. And that was one of the side effects, unfortunately. And then he goes on as the interviewer in this situation. He's playing against himself, as, and he says, uh, then you return to the University of Michigan in 1972 to, get, to enter the doctoral program in psychology. But you didn't finish the program. He's like, well, it's not that I didn't finish it. I chose not to finish it. And then it's like, oh, well, you went on to have a series of jobs, didn't you? All of which you quit. He's like, well, I was evolving. I'm still evolving. Now you have to understand William Hurt as the actor here, as Nick, the character, he's talking to himself as he's interviewing himself, going over his personal history since college. And then he goes on to say, well, but your real fame came as a radio psychologist on KSFO in San Francisco. Now, this is great because at this point, we're getting, he's like, we're learning everything about Nick, which is wonderful. But the actual camera that we're looking through as the movie camera is pans over and we see off to the side, we see Chloe sitting on a staircase as she's eavesdropping on Nick's personal performance in front of this video camera. So she's learning all about him. And when he mentions the bit about having a radio program in San Francisco as the psychologist, she perks up. And at this point, we also know that Chloe has mentioned that Nick reminds her of Alex, her now deceased boyfriend. And as she's listening to him and he mentions being a radio DJ as a radio psychologist, there's something that she recognizes in that. And that comes to play a little bit later on. But it, it's kind of fun to see her reaction to him. And we just know that there's seems to be a little bit of an attraction developing there, but Back to Nick, and he is continuing to interview himself, and he says, oh, so what are you doing now? Or should I say, what have you evolved into now? 
And William Hurt just has this great look on his face, sort of like this, you know, as he says that or asks that of himself, he has this incredulous look on his face. It's like, I can't wait to hear this answer. And of course, then he replies to himself saying, well, I'm in sales. Oh, yeah. What are you selling? I don't have to answer that. (laughs) And we know right then and there, oh, the reason for the drugs. Oh, he's selling drugs. Got it. And he's just admitting this on camera. So the point is, this is a favorite scene because I appreciate Hurt's performance, not just because he's playing against himself. He's playing two characters and he's having fun. And it's fun to watch him do this. But he's revealing himself to us, how he became who he is. He's definitely justifying some some of the stuff he's done. He's reasoning. But there's some underlying vulnerability here. And he's definitely self-loathing. That's in there as well. And again, you can see Chloe's appreciation for him from off to the side as she's beginning to take a liking to him. Uh, It's a fun scene. I like watching William Hurt so much more now. Yeah, agreed. This was the nominee for one of my favorite scenes. I'm glad that you you explained it to the audience. It's just him interviewing himself, just finds a video camera and decides just to kind of put himself on tape, which is kind of amazing. And then the fact that you see Chloe eavesdropping on it mm-hmm. and her reaction to it. And then in a way that forms a bond between the two of them that progresses throughout the rest of the movie. is kind of interesting because you because the fact that even Chloe's just there is just strange because it sees seven friends who were very tight at one point, And we have the girlfriend of one of their friends who's way younger than Alex was and you know they kind of keep her around because that's what they have left and they're hoping to get some information because it's always one of those why why did this person do that you my kids ask me this all the time why did such and such and I'm like I'm not in their minds I cannot the only person that's going to know is the person that you're asking about you have to ask that person right. and in this case Alex committed suicide didn't leave a note And everyone just wants to know why. And they're really just hoping Chloe has those answers. But she doesn't either. Yeah. So they keep her in and keep her very involved in everything that's going on. She's she's just like one of them, which is funny because five of them have just met her for the first time. Harold and Sarah know her because she's been staying at uh, one of their homes. But to the rest of them. That's the only piece of Alex that have left. For sure. That's a great point about the character of Chloe and kind of the purpose she serves in a way up to a point, I guess, in this film. And then we get a little bit more revelation from her later on, I, I personally feel. But it's fun because she's clearly attracted to Nick and just to watch Nick be so vulnerable. And he's so honest and forthright when how he's doing the self tape and he's just revealing his character defects. And I think she appreciates how open he's being. And it's fun towards the end when he's videotaping himself that uh, Kevin Klein comes in and interrupts him. And he kind of does this thing like, Hey, can't you see I'm, I'm videotaping myself right now. I'm in the middle of this show I'm putting on right now. He's like, Oh yeah. Okay. Sorry. I'll let you go. So coming back to honesty, I could see, uh, this is the thing is I, I'm trying to put myself in a younger viewer's shoes right now if they hadn't seen this movie and they let's say a 20 something turns this movie on today it might be a little not shocking but surprising as to how honest these characters are really and revealing they are especially you know with one another and how open they are but i i think it's it's uh it's pretty cool that just establishes again how tight their connection is moving on what's what's your first favorite scene 
Okay, so my first favorite scene, and we've touched on this a little bit already, and it's the, I heard it through the grapevine montage. And what I love about it is in the period of this song, you kind of learn everything about your main characters that you're going to see throughout the film. So so I'm going to break it down. So it kind of breaks down into 14 different scenes. So it starts with, in the beginning of the movie, we see Glenn Close on the phone hearing the news about what happened to Alex. And she walks over to Kevin Klein, who plays husband, Harold. And we just see that she's tearing, that she's good. She's about to deliver the news. And that's where the song kicks in right there. So that's kind of your first shot of this montage. So then we cut to what is essentially Alex. And we don't know at this time, but we see all we see is legs and someone's getting their socks pulled up. We cut to our next scene, which is Jobeth Williams plays Karen and she's in her kitchen and she's on the verge of tears. You see that look that she's got bad news too. So you kind of think, all right, whatever Glenn Close got in the beginning, we're also going to hear this. The same news has been sent to Karen. Now we're going to our next scene, which is we see a shirt being buttoned up and we notice the person that's bought the shirt's got some red fingernails. So it's a woman that's doing it but we still don't know who this person is getting dressed. Go to our next scene. And it's Jeff Goldblum who plays Michael. And he's in what looks like an office and he's wrestling through all these papers and he's really upset. And you see all these bookshelves. And then this woman comes in and she finds what Michael is looking for and she hands it to him and they hug. Now we're cutting away again. Back to this person getting dressed and it's a belt that's being buckled and it's the same female hands. Okay, get a little more clues here. We go into her next scene and we see Mary Kay Place who plays Meg and she's basically throwing a folder into a briefcase. We see the camera pull back and she reveals this huge nice office with this great view and Meg pulls out a cigarette and she starts smoking and she just looks longly out the window. So you kind of know she's gotten this news that we've already seen that Sarah has gotten and Karen has gotten. So we know it's bad news, but we don't know exactly what the news yet. But we're, we're starting to put the pieces together. And we can tell from the scene from Meg that she's probably some kind of high executive or possibly a lawyer. But we don't know yet. But we're getting we're getting all these clues. Now we go back to this body again that's getting dressed and it's shoes being tied. Okay, so is this something formal? We don't know. But we know there's bad news, and we see a person getting dressed like this, so it can't be good. Now we get to our next scene, which is like our eighth scene in this right now. So we're, we're a little over halfway there. And that's where we meet Tom Berenger, Sam. And he's on a plane, and he's lost in thought while he's having a drink. And a flight attendant approaches, and we find out she's almost kind of flirting. He kind of looks at her, just like you're, you're interrupting my train of thought, but he smiles. He's trying to be polite. And she opens up a little book and we see on the cover of the book that she has, the magazine actually, is Sam. And we find out that Sam is a movie star and she asks for an autograph. Tom Berenger, Sam smiles and just waves his empty glass that he wants another drink. And you see there's a whole slew of drinks already on his tray. Cut away again. We see a tie being put on this person. Female hands again. We cut away again. And now we meet Meg Tilly, who plays Chloe. And she's doing a little bit of aerobics. She's doing some serious stretching here. And she seems a little bit younger than everyone else that we've seen so far. 
So we don't know how this person ties in, but we know this person's going to tie in at some point because they're showing everybody else that's going to be in this cast. So we cut away again and we see the top of someone's head and it's being combed. And if you're a Kevin Costner fan like Jason and I are, that's the one shot you can like. That is definitely Kevin Costner's hair. You can tell. (laughs) But the hair is being combed by someone else. Person seems to be laying down. Eh, This doesn't look too good. Now we cut away again. And this time we see a close up. This is the first person character that we've seen. It's all really tight shots. And it's a close up of a man in a car opening his glove compartment and grabbing a bottle of pills. And then literally opens this pill bottle and dumps them all in the passenger seat. And all these pills have different colors, different sizes. And the person grabs like two or three. And then it pans up, but we don't directly see the person. We see the rearview mirror. And off the rearview mirror, it is William Hurt who plays Nick. And then we see the car drive away. Then we cut away again. And now we see cufflinks being put on this person that we've seen intercut between all these different characters. We see the sleeve being pulled up. And then that's when we see the wrist with the three slashes that have been stitched. They've been dressing the corpse of Alex intercut it between all these other characters. Then after that, it fades into a field where we see Kevin Klein, Harold, who we kind of saw in the beginning, and he's just staring off into this, the field. And he turns and he walks across the street to this gathering of cars that are pulling into a lot. And we see him walk past a hearse. And then he starts directing some cars to where to park as the music fades. So in the span of this song, we heard it through the grapevine. We've basically met all our main characters that we're going to see throughout the film. None of them has spoken since Sarah took that phone call in the beginning. And we've gotten to know a little bit about them in all in three and a half minutes. The writer's wet dream right there. Every, everything's <laughs> almost spelled out for you in that moment, in those three and a half minutes. Here's everybody that we're going to meet. We're going to figure out how they all intermix with each other in a couple of minutes. But here's just a little background about them. We know one's possibly a writer, which is Michael. We already got a little bit about Sarah and Harold. We know that they're a married couple. We're not, we don't know what they do, but we know that they're together. We know one of them has a possible drug addiction. We know one's an actor, and but we're still trying to figure out who the girl is in the aerobics. How does she fit in? But that's all set up for the next scene, which is the funeral. That's definitely one of my favorite scenes. Just a great way to start things up in less than five minutes time. A hundred thousand million trillion percent, my friend. Absolutely wonderful setup. And I have to say, I love the fact that you can identify Kevin Costner by his hair alone. That's amazing. Thank you. You nailed it. And uh, yeah, I briefly touched on it in our opening there. And it's show, don't tell. Good filmmaking is always, it's a visual medium. If you can tell a story through the visuals with few words as possible, that's usually good filmmaking. That doesn't have to be the way it is. We appreciate good writing, and this film is chock full of good writing. But wow, that opening montage, obviously the song, right on the nose, heard it through the grapevine, totally works. It's great editing, and... It's well written for those at home that if you've ever written or I should say written or read a screenplay, so much of a screenplay is in the description statements between the lines of dialogue. So this montage is still written out. It is an actual written scene. So it's filmmaking 101. 
you can deduce so much from those quick shots in this montage. And then it's just very clever. It's clever to intercut with the dressing of the deceased body, that being Alex. And then to end the montage, basically, with the shot of the body's wrist and seeing the scars. And you're like, oh, darn it, this poor sap uh, must have slit his wrist and committed suicide. So you already kind of know how he died just from the, the shot. I can't add any more. I'm glad you broke it down, man, because again, this is why we study this film in film school. It's like, oh, that's how you do that. That's how you open a film. And we know so much already in just the first five to 10 minutes. Yeah, it's 15 pieces. There you go. Put it all together. Well done. All right, Jason, back to you. What's your next favorite scene or moment? Yeah, absolutely, man. This one's going to be fun, and I'm going to try to make it quick. I'm calling it JT Lancer opening credits. That's (laughs) (laughs) This is pure awesomeness. So we understand that Tom Berenger is playing the character of Sam Weber, and Sam Weber is an actor, as uh, we learned right from the get, as Bill Bant just broke down from us in that opening montage. We know that he is an actor. And here we learn that he is portraying the character of J.T. Lancer, Private Eye, on television. It's J.T. Lancer is the name of the character he plays, and also it is the titular character. That's the title of the television show that he stars in. So we often see these type of parodies now in comedies, uh, whether it be, we actually talked about this in Scrooged, could see it like in Tropic Thunder or even Boogie Nights, where we see like the preview of a fictional television show within the movie. It's like a TV show within the movie. This is 1983 when The Big Chill comes out. So this is early on. And this one in particular is phenomenal, this parody of a TV show opening. Now, in the film, everyone is making preparations for dinner. They're all kind of in the kitchen and moving around one another. And they're just, there's a lot of great chemistry and they kind of uh, have gotten comfortable at this point. I believe it might be, this might be the second night that they're spending together. All of a sudden, as they're making preparations, Nick comes bursting into the kitchen and yells, JT Lancer, let's all go watch this incredible show. And it's really, he was really overdoing it on purpose. It's really funny. So they all get excited and they run into the living room and gather in front of the TV. And we watch the opening credits of Sam's show, JT Lancer. And of course, Sam is extremely like, oh, he's embarrassed. He's like, oh my God, do we have to do this? So there we are. We're watching the TV screen and the opening credits begin. And there's Sam as JT Lancer, Private Eye. And it's that action montage. He's climbing over as JT Lancer, climbing over balcony railing. Then he's running down a pier after a speedboat. Then we see him running with a suit on and carrying a machete. And then he's running down some random street somewhere else. Cut to he's sliding across a table. Actually, actually, I think it's a bar top. He's sliding across with a gun extended. And then he does his classic jump into a sports car where he just runs and jumps over the door and lands feet first onto the the driver's seat. uh, seat. And we understand later on that's basically JT Lancer's one of his signature moves. But then the credit sequence finally ends with him hopping into bed shirtless with not one, but two gorgeous women. And he just looks into the camera and gives this great big grin and this great (laughs) thumbs up. And then the title credit comes up, JT Lancer. And all the while, they're eating it up. That being not Sam himself, but all of the friends. They're doing a commentary as they're watching the credits. They're making fun of it, but they're having fun with it. They're having fun with Sam. 
And they're being very complimentary because Sam looks great. He's a stud. He's a very much the, the handsome leading man. So everyone's loving it and cheering on and, uh, like I said, providing character or uh, commentary. It's, it is, it's very funny. It's very lighthearted. And they do a great job with that, again, parody of the opening credits of the J.T. Lancer Private Eye show. It's something basically like in the 70s, early 80s, they nail it. That's what you would see for that type of show, at least in the opening credits. That's a fun, fun scene. I never would have thought about putting that as a favorite scene or moment. But for me, just watching that, if I were to describe to someone what the J.T. Lancer show is about, I would say it's a cross between Magnum P.I., and the fall guy just from watching Absolutely. that opening great call that's what was running through my head the whole time I'm like oh they totally lifted that but yeah that was funny stuff just the way all the friends are just uh ribbing him throughout the whole thing and sam is just so embarrassed but hey man that's how he's making a living heck yeah yeah he's a big tv star he's doing all right but yeah mm-hmm. if you just watch that and you're like oh my gosh they nailed it and you think about those shows back in the time because that's how the the show would open it was just a montage of action scenes we see our action hero doing his thing and it just comes off kind of cheesy, but it's so entertaining, especially watching Tom Berenger do it. Yeah, they're always so great because you're always excited when you saw an episode that had that scene from the opening credits right. in it. And you're like, oh, yeah, that's the episode. Like Knight Riders, another one, you know, kind of like that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's a good one, too. Good call. So for my next moment scene, and it's from your opening quote, Jason. Yeah. So all the friends are gathered around and they're finally talking about Alex. Why did Alex do this? Up to this point, they've been kind of avoiding the conversation. And now they're sitting down, they're discussing it. They're at that point of, why do we not see the signs? Why do we not help him? They're all sitting on couches. Sam's kind of on the floor. And at one point, Sam says like, oh, I should have known. I should have known. I should have helped him. And that's when Nick, William Hurt, just it's like bullshit, man. Just bullshit. And... That's when Sam comes to the line, what you open with is, hey, Nick, you know, we go back a long time and I'm not going to piss that away because you're higher than a kite. And I think what struck me was just Nick's answer, which you said was wrong. A long time ago, we knew each other for a short period of time. You don't know anything about me. It was easy back then. No one had a cushier birth than we did. It's not surprising our friendship could survive that. It's only out there in the real world that it gets tough. And I think what struck me by that is like when Jason and I talk about, we talk about college all the time. You know, we talk about all those people we hung out with and all those great times that we had. And, you know, everybody's moved on and done their own things. I mean, luckily, Jason and I have been able to work together for these last couple of years, you know, podcasts and movie projects before that. But there's so many other friends that I have that I haven't seen in such a long time, but I have such great memories of them. But I don't really know. What's been going on with that? I don't know their day-to-day journey. And I think just that quote, thinking like if, if we all got back together again, in the back of your mind, you think everything's just going to be the same. But it's not really because we've all changed so much. And what he's saying is right. It's like, there's no way you would have known the signs of Alex because you don't know Alex anymore. You knew college Alex. You didn't know adult Alex. You don't know what Alex was doing from here on out. There was no way you were going to help him. You weren't close enough with him to know. Even Sarah and Harold, who they were technically living with him, Sarah had a relationship with him that we find out that they had an affair. She would be more prone to know, but 
you know, because of the the affair, they kind of pulled away a little bit. But I just found it really fascinating. It's as much as I would love to see most of my friends again, not that I'm saying I don't want to see him again. There's just been so much going on in the meantime since I've really last seen him. We think we know them, but we don't because they've changed so much and I've changed so much and Jason has changed so much. It's interesting because we weren't we weren't in that environment. We were in kind of in the cushy college environment where the only thing we had to worry about is getting to class on time and submitting a paper. We didn't have to worry about raising kids or paying bills or seeing a doctor kind of stuff. It was easy, even though it wasn't easy at the time. But compared to everything else that you're going on in life, it's a lot more difficult. So I just thought that scene was very impactful. And then just the the emotional impact of hearing a friend commit suicide. And you, you're just never going to know the answers. You're just never going to know. You could be with that person every day and you still wouldn't understand why that person did that. Yeah, you might know they're depressed or they're going through a hard time. But what is it that pushed them over the edge to do what they did? And it's hard because you can't answer it. And that's what even makes it tougher. And even being around friends, hoping that you're going to get that answer, you're not going to get that answer. It hurts. It hurts a lot. And at that point, everyone's just trying to joke about it or, or push it away. But at, at some point, you have to face it. And as a group, they're trying to face it together. But there is a little bit of infighting among them, too. So it kind of makes it tough. Very short scene. But that yeah, that quote really just like, oh, yeah, that's so true. All those friends that I miss and haven't seen forever. Yeah, it wouldn't be the same if I saw them again. But that's okay. That's okay. You don't think about that. You think they're going to be the same person, but they're not. Great perspective and great breakdown. And my goal here is going to be to expand on it just a little bit because that also was my next favorite scene. It is what I call conversation number three, because this film, funny enough, is mainly it's a play. It's eight protagonists in a house and it's conversation upon conversation. So you might think, well, what are the obstacles here and what is the arc of this story? And basically, like you laid out, Bill, it's interesting because I believe if I were to reunite with friends that I hadn't seen in 15 years, which is the premise of this film, that I would need at least three days to get an idea of who those people were at present versus the people I knew when we were best of friends in college. When we were in college and we formed these relationships during our formative years, that was a time to be idealistic. We had goals and dreams that we wanted to fulfill, and that's what brought us together because we shared those dreams in common. But things change over a matter of 15 years, and we become adult, full-blown adults, and we have full life experiences, and we can't possibly know what those experiences are especially if you haven't seen each other in 15 years. So in this, to me, the arc is, you know, it's this three day, it's reuniting, but also getting reacquainted. And we watch this arc from the first conversation on the first night, the conversation on the following night. And then this, it culminates with this conversation. Number three, first day, they're getting reacquainted. Where are you at now? What's going on with you? What's up? And they kind of make some, they're like, oh, okay, I kind of see where you're at. Second day, they're getting a little bit more comfortable. We see Glenn Close's character, Sarah. She's upset a little bit, wishing Alex was there. So they do touch upon the subject of Alex here and there. And they're obviously very sad about him, but they're putting on some good music and getting a little drunk, getting a little high. 
and enjoying each other. And then finally, they're comfortable with one another enough come the final evening that they're going to be together that they have this intense conversation where everyone has a different perspective and ideas of who they are and who each other is and how they are going to process this grief. And everybody has a different idea of it. It's fascinating. So that's pretty basically for me, the arc is now it's kind of a time for this. I wouldn't go as far as to say as a come to Jesus conversation, but it's a little bit more honest and it's a little bit more forthright. And it's they're putting it all out on the table here. And I think that's kind of the point. It's like, let's get some of the, the feelings out. So it is the last night and it's after the dinner. And yeah, like I said, there's been some weed smoking, some beer drinking. And I think you talked about this. The conversation actually does start with them being upset that Alex hadn't left a suicide note. And, you know, Nick jumps right in and going, well, what if he had? I'm glad that he didn't. He didn't need to pontificate about all of his reasons and going on. He just took care of business. But Sam, like you said, Sam is he's kind of takes a little bit sadder, darker tone, feeling guilty for letting Alex slip away. And yeah, they come up with reasons why Alex may have cut himself off from the group that he may have just gotten lost. He was bouncing from job to job. And so they're theorizing about that. And what had happened was he just not happy anymore. They talk about, you know, earlier in this, I think in, you know, in the middle, they're talking about loss of hope and despair, but nobody really knows why they're just at a loss truly and figuratively. So they mentioned that he was a scientific genius, Alex, that is. And then, yeah, Nick kind of lights the spark here. He sparks this fire where he says, yeah, so if you're feeling guilty that you, you know, you should have been in touch with him. If you, if you had been in touch with Alex, could you have saved his life? And Nick actually said, this is pretty harsh. Nick actually says, sometimes it's not why you kill yourself. It's why not. It's like, he's really throwing out some of this existential uh, psycho, I won't go, maybe not psycho babble, but that's kind of his, he has that background. So he kind of has that, those existential thoughts, but then Michael chimes in with some attempts at the ex- existential wisdom and Nick attacks his character directly. Karen says they're all hurting. And Nick goes, you know what? I think that's a crock of shit. He thinks we all feel like we should be hurting, but maybe we're not. It's just he has, they have different takes on it. Nick's like, yeah, maybe we feel guilty because we actually aren't hurting because we didn't know Alex anymore. And Sam goes right at him with, you know what, if you hate your life, Nick, it, that's your problem. And Nick comes right back at him with saying, yeah, that's all I'm saying. If I hate my life, that's my problem. And Sam says, I don't care what you say. I know I loved you and everybody else here. I'll believe that till I kick. Just a great line. So yeah, it's the convo that really gets the core of what people are feeling or not feeling and the reality of it and the guilt of it. And maybe it means nothing or everything, but the truth is just different for everyone. The process of grieving and understanding and accepting is different for everyone. It's tough when emotions like guilt and regret and remorse are involved, but the huge and unanswerable questions are why? Why did it happen? What does it mean? Why did Alex kill himself? Does it mean we should have done something more? Should we have listened more? Should we have helped more? What does it mean if I don't feel anything? What does it mean? I'm putting myself in their shoes right now and saying this. What does it mean about who I am today and what I'm doing with my life and what's that worth to me? Does Alex's death give me some perspective and make me look at myself? And what does it mean that I've chosen to use this time as short and valuable that it is on this planet? What have, you know? What have I chosen to do with this life? What does it mean about my friendship to these people that I haven't seen in 15 years? How close am I to them? Really? 
Does it mean we never really know anyone at all? It makes me think that this is why these kinds of retreats with longtime friends are good and they're important. And I, I want to have I want have this with my college friends now after watching the movie. There's always that reacquaintance phase and then it moves into the more candid phase, which ends up being the therapeutic phase. And hopefully you leave this type of gathering with a better understanding of the value of long lasting friendships. Yeah. So I love this scene because it's kind of the culmination of the arc of these conversations within the film. And uh, you get some real honesty in it. And it's a little harsh. It's a little brutal. But there's a lot of love still there at the end of it. All right. So for me, I guess it's multiple moments. And the reason why I love this movie the first time, it was Jeff Goldblum's character's Michael. Just all the winning lines that he had throughout the movie. Heck yeah. Uh, some of my favorite is um, we find out that Harold owns a, a sneaker company, some kind of shoe company. Running dog. And he gets sneaker. <laughs> yep, running dog. And he gets sneakers for everyone there at the house. And he has all the boxes on the kitchen table. And they all have their name. And while Harold's trying to get everybody's shoe size, Michael just says something to the effect of feet grow as you get older. Because he's asking where there's signs. And, and Michael just comes back to the line with, yeah, I wish everything did. Just like those snide lines like that that I love. There's another part in the movie when they're having a discussion and Michael says, everyone does everything just to get laid. And Karen comes back like, who said that, Freud? And Michael goes like, no, I did. I just thought it was funny. And then when they get up in the morning, Michael's always last by like an hour. And he comes down to the kitchen and it's just Sarah in there drinking coffee. And Michael's just kind of wandering around getting something out of the fridge. And he sits down and he goes, are we the first one up? And at that point in the movie, you've seen everyone else is up already and they're doing their thing. And he's just the late sleeper. And it's just it's just so funny because, you know, what has happened up to that point. And every day he's always the last one up. And he always seems to be in the kitchen with with Sarah for some reason, which is kind of funny. So he just has all these great lines. I know all of them I said are kind of out of context. But for me, he, he was the one character that stood out from the get go. And the lines are flying the whole time. Oh, heck yeah, man. That's great. I'm glad you called it out because I, that was the moment, one, uh, one of two moments that I wrote down was Michael's line, are we the first ones up? Because it's great. But you're right. Michael, Jeff Goldblum, he is the comic relief of the film. Very entertaining. It's funny because in different moments, he's a little bit slimy in some moments, but he's still charming in a way. He just Jeff Goldblum plays it perfectly because we know from the opening montage, he has a girlfriend back at home. I believe her name is Annie. And they talk about her, but he's completely hitting on Chloe the whole time. And when that's not working out, he also actually then attempts to sleep with Meg because we know in the film that Meg is looking for a partner to be her stud, if you will, and impregnate her because she wants to have a child. And when Michael hears of this, because it seems as though there's no secrets among these friends, he offers his services it's like this guy just he just really does want to get laid. Like he says, the saying is the motivation for everything is to get laid. But that line, are we the first ones up, is great because we know from the night before that Michael took a quaalude that Nick gave him and it absolutely knocked him out. So he woke up super late and Sarah did some cocaine that Nick gave her as a pick me up, which in turn kept her up all night. And then she crashed. So she slept in. So they're the last ones at the table and missed all the action of the morning. And you just get Michael just going, are we the first ones up? (laughs) No. Uh, So that's great. And then, uh, so I'm I'm just glad you mentioned that, Bill, and gave Goldblum and the character Michael his props. My other moment that I wanted to call out, and this will be my last entry into favorite moments and scenes, is when 
Chloe gives the leather jacket that belonged to Alex to Nick. It's very brief, and I found it very touching, and I found it very, very smart because, as we've mentioned, Chloe has appeared rather unaffected throughout the film. She's probably close to 10 years or more younger than everybody else. We were assuming there are 30-somethings in this film, and she's probably 20-something. She's very young, and she's in a completely different phase of her life. She's seeing the death of her boyfriend in a different light, and she kind of looks like she just has a straight face the whole time. And she laughs sometimes. It appears inappropriately or says something that's inappropriately or inappropriate in the moment or in the context of what the conversation is at the time in the movie. And it's just like, this girl just seems, is she just flighty? Is she just kind of removed from emotion? And then at the end, we do know that she's taken a lot a liking to Nick and This is close to the end of the film when she wants to go downstairs to the downstairs of the house where she shared a room with Alex. And then Alex, of course, passed away, but she wants to go down there and uh, spend some time with Nick. And she gives Alex's leather jacket to Nick and we the camera pans over to her face and she's crying. The tears are running down her cheeks and it's like, oh, yeah, she really actually does miss Alex a great deal. She's dealing with it in her own way. We get to see that kind of revealed in that moment. So I found that touching. Yeah, it's a very powerful scene because the way I interpret it, too, that she sees a lot of Alex in Nick. Yeah, she says as much. And I think she doesn't want the same thing to happen to Nick that happened to Alex. So she's trying in a way to get close to him and maybe, okay, I could not save him. Maybe I can save this person, too. Sure. And then you also find out that Nick used to work on a radio show. It's like you're calling psychologist or psychiatrist. And she called the show at one point and she tells him like, he's embarrassed by it. It's like, Oh, what terrible advice did I give you? And she's like, no, you actually gave me good advice. It really, it really did help me. And I appreciate it. And I used to love to listen to your show. So when she connected the dots, you know, when you're talking about his scene, I think it really, uh, started the the wheels turning that you know this is someone that needs help also and you know maybe i can at least help this person yeah absolutely and it's as if the the roles are reversed where like you said yeah it's before when she was only 15 and she was listening to nick's radio show he helped her and then now in this situation she can return the favor she's helping him so pretty cool anything else that's it for me for that segment Hello, this is Jason, co-host of the All 80s Movies Podcast, with a message from Factor Meals. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer, thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you will always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you will always have new flavors to explore. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Head to factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 and use code 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. 
That's code 80smovies50 at factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, let's move on to Swiss Cheese and Complaint Department. And why do we call it Swiss Cheese? Because although this movie is delicious, it does have emotional holes. Yes, if it doesn't have any emotional holes, we just file a complaint with the complaint department. Jason, we have for Swiss cheese or complaints. I got zip. I got nada. Nothing. I've got nothing for complaints and Swiss cheese. I may touch on something in my additional thoughts that I have maybe some questions about. All right. I got. I don't know why I went high pitched, but <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to uh, leave it to you. Okay. Maybe uh, I can build on what you're about to present here. What do you got? Okay. My, mine are just complaints. I don't think there are really any plot holes. So my first complaint. So I got pseudo big complaint and then like a minor complaint. So I'll go with the big. Wait, what do you think I should go with first? The big one or the minor one? I want to hear the big one right now. Okay. So we have Mary Kay Place who plays Meg and she wants a baby. All right. See, this is already going into what I was going to talk about in my additional questions. Okay. I love it. All right. So, yeah, absolutely. Go for it, man. So she's not married. She wants to be a single mom. She knows this is the time that maybe if she has sex, she'll get pregnant. So she asks Sam and Nick to have sex with her to have this baby. And we find out Nick can't because of what happened in Vietnam. And Sam politely just turns her down. He just, I, I get it. But what ends up happening is Harold, who's married to Sarah, sleeps with her in the end. The last night there, they have sex so she can hopefully get pregnant. Why don't they just try to do artificial insemination? Probably have a better chance doing it that way. Meg has the money. It's not like she's poor. I could see Sarah being more likely to agree with that, even though... She does agree having Harold about that. Is it because Sarah's guilty because she slept with Alex and she figures they should just even the score? Okay, I slept with Alex. You can sleep with Meg. I literally wrote that down. Yeah. There's just a lot of questions with all of that. I still find that weird. I don't even know if I was put in that position. How It's like, because they're in the bed and they're kind of kissing. I'm like, should you be doing that? I mean, I guess you got to get excited and stuff, but I don't know. Yeah, this scenario presents a lot of questions, thoughts, and feelings. And I think it's done purposefully so. Also, what has to enter into this equation, again, is the times. These are baby boomers. You know, the, They were in college in the 60s. It was a lot of the, the free love, if you will. And they seem to still have a little of that residual... Kind of like it's the boundaries aren't as strict. I'm not excusing any type of affair or extra, yeah, no, extramarital affair. But for beyond that and making, you know, just saying, okay, these are like a product of the 60s. And so it's, it is more like they're flower child types and they're just going to be there for each other emotionally and physically on a whim, it seems very easily. So that's was my question because I would written down the Meg element. Was it too easy for Sarah and Harold to agree that Harold should sleep with Meg? It just felt very easy. And then, yeah, yes, you're absolutely right. Good thought. She could have had artificial insemination. She could have considered adoption. However, in this scenario, we know that Sarah and Harold are married. However, Sarah, five years previous, had an affair with Alex, the deceased. And they had slept with each other for a few times. And afterward, 
they told everyone what had happened. So everyone knew and they figured everybody could get over it and move on. But it was never quite the same, especially between Sarah and Alex after that. And it was tough for Sarah's husband, Harold, to get over it. But he did. They moved beyond it. So now it's five years later and here's the reunion for Alex's passing. And now it comes to this point where Meg wants to have a child and she wants to uh, wants one of the men in this scenario and that at this reunion to be the father, to father this child or at least impregnate her. Then when Sarah sees Meg on the phone speaking to one of their children, I believe, she sees that this kind of like a bit of a connection between Meg and Harold, her husband, and she just decides that she's going to offer her husband to Meg to be the father of her child. And she's like, wait a minute, you're just okay. You just made that decision in a matter of minutes. And now she then in a following scene, she gets a moment alone with Harold to present this opportunity to him saying, and we don't actually hear her say it, but we understand what, what's happening. She's asking him to sleep with Meg. She's asking her husband to sleep with someone else because she, this other woman wants to have a child. It's just like, Oak. And then he agrees. And it's like pretty wild, especially these times. I don't know. It's pretty wild to think this all feels way too fast and it feels too is easy, but you are absolutely right. I brought up the same question of was Sarah doing this as a kind of makeup gesture for having had an affair with Alex five years prior. And it was like a kind of like, okay, we're all even now. I had the affair and I'm going to allow you to sleep with another woman now. So we're even. Or was it meant to be a just kind of a general healing gesture for everyone to move past the affair that had happened before? And this is really about free love and it just is going to bring everybody even closer somehow. But also my question is, what if it doesn't work? Yeah. What if she doesn't get pregnant? Then what was it all for? No guarantee. It's wild. It's like, you're, you guys are all good with this? You're okay with this? Because I'm sorry. It may sound, especially if you got, let's say, a few drinks in you. You smoked a couple J's. You feel pretty good. And you're like, yeah, let's do it. And you do it. It's never the same the next morning. <laughs> you wake up, you're like, oh, maybe that, or maybe a week later, whatever, these weird feelings start creeping in and thoughts. And you're like, was that a good idea? And you just look at each other differently after something like that. At least it would be tough for me. Maybe it's just me. I don't know. Listeners, chime in. Could you do something like that? That's the question, right? And I think you you said that, right, Bill? I mean, I couldn't. I couldn't do it. There's a lot you have to talk through about that. And he makes that decision pretty quickly. Requires or at least deserves a much longer conversation. Yeah, because it's your friend. You're the father. And what's your say in, in the raising of this child? As much as Meg would say, no, I got it. She's your friend. You'd still feel responsible. Even if it was, let's just say they went the artificial insemination route and said, hey, can you donate your sperm so I can have a baby? There's still a lot of questions to ask about that. Mm -hmm. But the fact you're going to physically do it. But then you throw on top of it, oh, no, they're going to have sex. with. I don't know. Yeah. I'm right there with you, man. Yeah. That's a a tough one for me. What was your smaller complaint? Uh, That two-on-two football game, man. (laughs) <laughs> Bill Bant, sometimes you and I are on the same page. I actually did put that down. If I was going to say a complaint, uh, I wrote two on two football. Hmm. Dot, dot, dot. So, um, 
That's it. I was like, I don't know about that game. I know. I'm like, did people really do that? Like halftime of a college or a football game, you're going to go out and play two on two. If you did two on two with a steady quarterback, I might be okay with that. But it's really just one on one because the other person has to be a quarterback. I'm like, this isn't really a football game. And then yeah. Michael's weak pass to Chloe. I was like, oh, <laughs> Jesus, man, make it more obvious. Why don't you just jump on her and just do her there in the front lawn? Uh, so funny. Yeah, it's goofy. Look, I get it. It's supposed to be fun, but it's like, is this much of a game or is it literally, it's just a free for all. They're just running around and you're just throwing the ball up for grabs and hopefully somebody catches it. And then you didn't know if it was a two hand touch. Is it touch football? Cause they're touching each other, but that didn't seem to make offensive player then down by any means. I don't know what was going on in that game, but they were having fun. Yeah. It seemed like, and I get, I, I like the idea of the traditional football. Uh, you go out and play a, a quick, you know, few plays or whatever during the halftime of the big game. Like if that were a traditional thing you did every year for the big Michigan game, but the game itself in the film is a little bit haphazard. Yeah. You have to have at least two receivers. Yeah. If they had someone else playing and they were steady quarterback, I think it would have been a little bit more okay with it. (laughs) That's just me. Hey, no, it's all good. I, I, we like to get a little nitpicky in our, or I don't know if that's even being that nitpicky. It's not great. It's just not great, but it is, it's funny to watch because I watched it again before we were doing this recording and, and I was like, yeah, that's a little rough, that game. It's unintentionally funny is what it is, especially True. watching Michael do the half-ass pass where he's just trying to get a, a decent spiral off. Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. Let's move on to Hey, it's actor. All right. So in this segment, we spotlight a character actor you have seen in many other films, an actor making their big screen debut, or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo. It's hey, it's an actor. Who do we choose this week? We chose someone we've mentioned several, several times already. She was featured in Bill's major complaint. We're going with Mary Kay Place, who plays the role of Meg. I am definitely giving her a shout out because she's a bit of an underrated performer in this film, and she is obviously quite good in this role but just did not have the flashy career that most of her co-stars would go on to have. And in fact, and I'm sorry to call you out here, Bill, but I'm calling myself out as well. When we talked about doing this movie a week or so ago, and we ran down the cast list just off the top of our heads from memory, neither one of us could remember her name. Correct. And that's why she's this week's Hey, It's That Actor. So here she is, Mary Kay Place, who plays the role of Meg. Mary Kay Place, born 1947. She's an American actress. She's also a singer and a director and a screenwriter. I did not know that. She is well-known for portraying Loretta Haggers on the television series Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, a role that won her the 1977 Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Supporting Actress for a comedy series. So how about that? Uh, She has had numerous film appearances, including Private Benjamin in 1980, The Big Chill here in 83, Captain Ron in 92. She was in Francis Ford Coppola's 97 drama, The Rainmaker. So yeah, she had found kind of her niche on film and TV playing quirky country moms, including Reese Witherspoon's mom in Sweet Home Alabama from 2002. This is all from IMDb. And you know what? I did, man, she also recorded three studio albums for Columbia Records. She was a recording artist and she recorded one of those albums in the persona of Haggers from Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. 
which included the top 10 country music hit Baby Boy. Here's a small bit of trivia. She wrote three episodes of MASH, the television series, wow. uh, in conjunction with uh, another writer named Linda Bloodworth uh, Thomason. So, yeah, there you go. Mary Kay Place. She's still with us. And according to IMDb, was still working up to 2022, according to her credits. There you go. Mary Kay Place is this week's Hey, It's That Act. She should get her due. Excellent job in this movie. Yeah, it's just she's the one cast member. You like, you can go down the. You're like, oh, star, 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 and they're like, oh yeah, she's in. She's great. She was in some stuff. I what's her name again? Yeah. And it's not fair. It's just she it has a good career. Good career. Yeah, absolutely. Mary Kay Place. Moving right along to facts and trivia. What are some facts and trivia about the Big Chill? I didn't realize this because I was thinking, you know, this would be perfect for a limited series, like six episode series on Netflix today. But The Big Chill was adapted for television as the short lived series Hometown. Never saw it. Never heard of it. Later, it influenced the TV series 30 something and a million little things. I can totally see it influencing 30 something. Of course, that yeah. makes sense. All right, so what does the film's title mean? So writer-director Lawrence Kasdan explains that The Big Chill refers to the experience of cold adult reality after leaving the warm embrace of true friendship during college. The Big Chill is a cooling process that takes place for every generation when they move from the outward-directed, more idealistic concerns of their youth to a kind of self-absorption self-interest with places or personal desires above those of the society or even an ideal. The movie's title refers to the cold world of adult reality. I like it. All these years later, I know what it means. No kidding. I had written that one down as well. Totally makes sense. And I was like, oh yeah, it's a good title. <laughs> Always wanted to know what it meant. Uh, speaking of Lawrence Kasdan, while attending the University of Michigan, Kazan lived at the Eugene V. Debs Cooperative House in the late 1960s, and his experiences at the co-op informed the direction of the screenplay. Many of the characters were based on his housemates and the ways in which they cook communal meals and share their house echo the culture of Ann Arbor cooperatives. So they wrote the screenplay while Kasdan was directing Body Heat, and many of the cast members from that film agreed to appear in The Big Chill if it was completed. But as we know, the only cast member from Body Heat that was also in The Big Chill would be William Hurt. So fans have long clamored to see Kevin Costner's footage for several sequences showing Alex Marshall's life prior to his suicide. But in documentaries and interviews since, Lawrence Kasdan has never shown anything more than still photographs from the location shoot. Kasdan has also refused to do any sort of director's cut, saying that the version of the film is as it has stood since 1983, and his director's cut is his director's cut and will not be augmented. I'm glad you brought that up because my next piece of trivia directly relates to that scene that was cut uh, with Kevin Costner and Joe Beth Williams recalled filming a scene. Yeah. Flashing back to the characters in 1968. It was just wonderful to shoot. She said they rented this big house in Atlanta and installed bead curtains, rock posters, incense, 1968 life magazines, 
It was a real-time warp, and Williams says that in the scene, her character was living with William Hurt's character, Nick, and ignoring Tom Berenger's character, Sam. The Alex character, played by Kevin Costner, looking like a scruffy James Dean, was also in the scene. That turned out to be a problem. Nobody could live up to that role, that being Alex, after the buildup throughout the film, and the audiences said they didn't want to see anybody try. So the last 10 minutes of the film were just cut out. When I read that, I'm like, okay, that totally makes sense. Because as great as we know Kevin Costner is, you and I are fans, I love Kevin Costner. If the whole movie we're watching these characters talk about Alex and they're building him up, and then we finally do get to see him in a flashback sequence at the end of the movie, we're all expecting something from that character and expecting that actor to be something probably more than he is. So there's no way Kevin Costner could have probably lived up to those expectations. So I think that's that was wise to cut that. Oh, yeah, I agree. It'd be nice to see. I haven't even seen the still photographs. Oh, heck yeah. Sure. Yeah. Anything, right? Mm-hmm. But that adds to the legend in a way. So yeah, exactly. Cool. I get it. For scenes in which director Lawrence Kasdan anticipated using music, he would have the actors deliver their lines and voices much louder than normal. This was done so that when the songs were added to the soundtrack later in post-production, the lines would be heard clearly above the music and sound natural. Kevin Klein met future wife Phoebe Cates when she auditioned for the part of Chloe, which eventually went to Meg Tilly. And then another one on the relationship side. So Michael's girlfriend, Annie, seen only during the opening titles, is portrayed by Jeff Goldblum's then-wife, Patricia Gall. Right. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, this will be my last one. Uh, drawing on their own theatrical experience, many of the actors compared the atmosphere on the set during rehearsal and during filming to that of a workshop, allowing them to be comfortable and creative and to take risks. They all cited one example of that atmosphere, a marathon improvisation prior to the start of production, during which each of them stayed in character for over five hours, merging their identity with that of the characters in the film. All right. Moving on to box office. The Big Chill was released on September 28th, 1983 in 745 theaters. On an estimated budget of $8 million, it grossed $56.4 million domestically. It went number one at the box office, knocking off Mr. Bomb, which had held the top spot for the previous five weeks. Even though ticket sales increased 13% in its second week, it fell to the number two spot behind the return of Sean Connery as James Bond in Never Say Never Again. The Big Chill would return to the number one spot again, but it would take another five weeks for that to happen. The movie would spend another seven weeks in the top ten. It would become the 13th highest grossing movie in the United States, just ahead of Never Say Never Again. Moving on to reviews, when growing up in the 80s, we would watch sneak previews with Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert. Their review of The Big Chill was split. Even though they didn't review the movie on their show, on a special Best of 1983 episode, Gene had The Big Chill on his list, which Roger disagreed with. Roger gave The Big Chill two and a half stars, stating, The Big Chill is a splendid technical exercise. It has all the right moves. It knows all the right words. Its characters have all the right clothes, expressions, fears, lusts, and ambitions. But there's no payoff, and it doesn't lead anywhere. 
I thought at first that was a weakness of the movie. There also is the possibility that it's the movie's message. Rotten Tomatoes gives it a tomato meter score of 71% and it has an IMDb rating of 7.1. So that takes us to additional thoughts and questions. Yeah, absolutely. So I've got three questions revolving around Kevin Klein, a.k.a. Harold. Now, I maybe have, could have put these in the complaints, but I just these are questions for you, Bill Bant. Okay. How do we feel about Kevin Klein's accent in this film? Oh, yeah. There was one scene where I was like, whoa, wait, where did that come from? And then I didn't notice it for the rest of the movie. Yeah, so he puts on a southern accent in this movie, and uh, it comes and goes. Yeah, there's only it's, one scene I really heard it. They were outside. I think it was when he was yelling at Nick. After oh, that he goes got right over. to my, my next question. Okay. Yeah. Was Harold's reaction to Nick's encounter with the police officer a bit of an overreaction? No. Because I think Harold probably feels like it reflects poorly on him. And he, as he mentioned, too, that officer has helped him twice in times of need. So then for a friend to disrespect him, you almost feel like you're disrespecting this officer also. All right. I'll buy that. Uh, and then lastly, how do we feel about Kevin Klein's holy shit short shorts? Oh, I'm glad you brought that up because <laughs> I did want to say that one time. I was like, yep, he's out, he's out there when you were talking about um, Michael with his... When the first one's up, I'm like, all I kept, when you were saying that, I was thinking to myself, I was like, nope, how's out there running in his short shorts? Oh, yeah. Such early 80s. Kevin Klein not leaving a whole lot to the imagination. No. You could do a whole montage of early 80s movies, short shorts. Ah, oh, great stuff. All right, so here's a question from me. Do you think Karen regrets sleeping with Sam? Hmm. I do not. I don't think she does. That's one of those things. I'm not. I'm not condoning the action because I mean she very blatantly cheated on her husband. However, I would feel as though I think she. It was something that she needed to find out for herself. If. I hate to say it, and again, I'm not excusing her behavior, but she clearly needed to get it out of her system. She needed to consummate that relationship to confirm whether or not, if that you know would mean that there was a future for them, or maybe she just needed to just to simply have sex with him to make love to Sam, and then that was that would put a put the end to that uh, that fantasy. And that idea, and then she could just l move on with her stable husband, if that makes sense. Okay. I actually feel the opposite. I feel like she did regret doing it. Oh, yeah? Okay. Yeah. I mean, as much as we kind of see that she's not happily married, I don't know. I, I just felt like the way she was after it happened. And it's, I mean, it's not, I mean, the movie's almost over at that point. But I just kind of like, oh, yeah, she looks like she didn't want to do that or regrets doing that. That's why mm -hmm. I asked. I was just wondering if you saw the same thing. Maybe a twinge of regret in the way that it's never what you build it up in your mind to be. Right. You think it's going to be this 
fantasy come to life. It's impossible. And so once it's done, you're like, ah, was it worth it? Probably not. Does she regret it? Ah, maybe a little bit. I would hope and think that, you know, that uh, it would just confirm that she needs to get back to her husband and uh, keep her family together. Yep. All right. My next question. So if you need me to explain it after I ask, go ahead. All right. Here we go. Who is your favorite actor from the cast or a favorite movie from one of these actors? And Kevin Costner does not count. Ah, damn it. Well, then I'm going to go with the other Kevin. I'm going with Kevin Klein. I adore him. Despite his accent coming and going in the film, I just think he's natural and a fish called Wanda. Absolutely. Um, Klein, I would actually go with Dave. Oh, yeah. Great call. Of course. Absolutely. Yeah, that's great. It's funny. There's a particular scene in this film where it's near the beginning. I think it's the, it's the very first night they're all uh, hanging out together in the house. And Kevin Klein comes in. And I think they're all like drinking wine and stuff, but he kind of hops over the couch and just puts his legs up on Mary Kay Place's lap. And he's so comfortable and so connected and kind of in the moment where it's like, oh man, yeah, these guys are all really just close friends. And there's just the way he his face is just so relaxed. He's just a very relaxed actor. And I think he can be very funny in moments and his delivery is... He just has great timing. So love me some Kevin Klein. Yeah. Anything else for additional thoughts and questions? Bill, I'm going to put you on the spot. Oh, man. Can you name a friend or friends from college that you miss, that you haven't spoken to in a while, that you would put on your list for a college reunion if you could? If you wanted to give some peeps a shout out right now on our podcast, somebody you haven't spoken to in forever and just say, hey, man, I miss you. Perfect timing. So Kevin Mazer, who was my roommate in college, sure. the day we're recording this, this is his birthday and I forgot to text him. So Kevin, if you actually listen to this episode, happy belated birthday. That's great, man. Uh, we've got some friends in common. Uh, I mean, I've been in loose touch with uh, Sippy, but I always miss that guy. Jeff Cloudy, we know you're out there and listening. Love you, man. Would love to see you again soon. Craig Rose, Tom McKenzie, there's Dave Williams, man. If you're out there and listen, haven't spoken to you for a while. I know these guys, you know, some of which I'm friends with on Facebook, but I, I just, w- w- these are guys I would love to go on a, like a college reunion slash retreat mm-hmm. uh, with if possible. So I wanted to, to give some old college buddies a, a shout out, but I'm, I'm very lucky. We're very lucky that we'd still have a handful of our college friends out here that we work with and talk to and see on a regular basis. Pretty, pretty nice. Pretty yeah. grateful for that. Yeah. The whole crew at MT five, you know who you are. Think about you guys all the time too. miss you. There you go. And if I'm, I'm sorry if I forgot anyone and left anybody off that list, I just rattled off. Just she yell at me, respond. I'll give you a shout out at some point. You know, Jenny work is so Jenny work. Shout yeah, out. Right. <laughs> I got to see her recently, which is really nice. Actually. Uh, she's amazing. We love you, Jenny. All right, let's move on to our rating. So on a scale of one to five pairs of running shoes, what do you give the big chill? <laughs> I'm giving this uh, 4.5 running shoes. This is a great slice of life, 30-something coming-of-age movie. It could easily be a play. It's very theatrical in that way, but it makes for a great 
Lawrence Kasdan film. The strength of the writing, the performances, and the soundtrack keep you engaged for the full hour and 45 minutes. I'm really glad I watched it again at this age now because it forces me to look back and think a bit about the way it was in those college days and the choices I've made and the friends I've kept and now what life looks like for me as a result of those choices and also the choices my contemporaries have made and how I compare and contrast and how it doesn't make a damn bit of difference as long as we remain friends and more importantly you know, just how I deal with my current state of existence in this reality and facing reality and taking care of myself so I can be better for others and be there for my friends. And so, yeah, this movie does make me a bit introspective, but it also makes me laugh. There's some great levity in this, and it makes me miss laughing with my friends and grateful for those times I get to laugh with my friends. So I do uh, yeah, appreciate the life I have now. And I am grateful for this movie. Four and a half running shoes for me, Bill Band. How about you? I give it four pairs of running shoes. Great writing, great cast, great soundtrack. Um, I love, like I said, going back to this movie every couple of years, seeing it from a different perspective, seeing it from different eyes. Can't wait to revisit it again uh, about a decade from now and uh, yeah. see how my thoughts have changed about this. All right, so I think that about wraps it up for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for spending your time with us and listening. Please take the time to follow us on your preferred streaming platform. Give us a review and rate us. If you want to learn more about our show, you can visit us at all80smoviespodcast.com. For our next episode, it's that time of year when everyone is heading back to school, so we are bringing back our Back to Back to School series. For the second weeks, we discuss two movies that deal with life in school. First will be the 1989 cult classic Heathers, starring Winona Ryder and Christian Slater. We hope you can join us. Have an excellent week, everyone. I, I, I feel like I got a great break on a used car. Thanks for staying up with us. Good night, world. <laughs>